Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today we're talking the European energy crisis. It's been years in the making, it's been going on for a year, and now poses a real threat to utilities, market participants, even the free market structure itself, and even to the European Union. To discuss the backdrop, the consequences, and potential solutions is Gerard Reed. Gerard has 20 years' experience in investment banking, in energy and clean technologies, and is also co-host of the Redefining Energy podcast, a podcast focused on the energy markets around the world. As always, if you enjoy the show, please do leave us a positive review on the platform you're listening on, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Gerard, thanks for joining. Well, thanks for having me, Paul. You're a podcast that I listen to every week, so it's really nice to be on it. <laughs> You're too kind. Okay, so we are talking, though, the European energy crisis. Not only what it is and, and how it's come about and how long it's been going on, predating Russia's invasion of Ukraine for sure, um, but what are the, the responses that we're seeing at the governmental level, at the corporate level, at the consumer level, both in the short term and the long term, and, and some of what you think might be the, the solutions and remedies to it. Before we, I guess, dig into those, can you just set up for us what is the, the European energy crisis and, and, and how long has it been going on? Right. Well, listen, I, I describe it the mess we're in. And what I mean by that is what we've seen is, I would say, the most incredible rises in prices. And I start with sort of natural gas. It's up like threefold over the last year. If I look at coal, almost up threefold over the last year. Oil, 60% up. And power prices, they're up even more. So power prices last year across Europe are probably 50 euros a megawatt hour. Today, they're at 200 euros a megawatt hour, right? So that's really the basics of it. It's just massive price increases across everything to do with energy at the wholesale level. And those have been sustained. I mean, we're talking pre-Christmas, right? This has been a long, well, even into this last summer, this has been almost a year that we've been in this mess, as you describe it. Yeah, yeah. So it's just, look, if you look at today, gas prices in Europe, we always do them in megawatts per hour are at 99 euros a megawatt hour. That's what they were today. And just give you an idea, well, they were at those levels back in October, right? Now, I know in between that, prices did spike up to 225 euros a megawatt hour, but they're still at levels pre-Ukraine situation. So in other words, the Ukraine situation has probably worsened it, but it wasn't the cause of the issue. Yeah. And I want to, to move on to causes shortly. I just want to really nail down, you know, it's called a crisis. How significant is this? How prevalent is it in the general public consciousness? You know, are we talking front page of the news every day? I mean, how big an issue is this in Europe today? Well, actually, just in, I, I was just a football trainer tonight. And what I have is one of my co-players says, Jared, you know, I need to buy bottled gas. When should I buy it? Right. People never, ever talked about energy before. Now, Everyone's talking about it, right? And everyone's talking about it because it's impacting everyone across the whole continent. So it's not a German thing or a French thing. It's everyone. And it, it, again, it starts with electricity. And probably the best way to describe electricity, what we've seen in the electricity markets is we've seen wholesale power prices almost on a daily basis being above the retail power price. Now, just think of that, right? So I'm selling to you something at 300 euros a megawatt hour 
but actually the wholesale power price, which doesn't include grid costs and taxes and all that, is higher than that, right? So like never seen stuff like this. And I would also add up as well as the other thing that's really difficult to deal with is the volatility in the power prices and also the gas prices. But the power prices, just give you an idea, there are there are days when, uh, for example, Easter Sunday, Easter Sunday across most of continental Europe, you had power prices of zero, right? Because there wasn't a huge amount of power demand and there was lots of solar in the system. And guess what? Power prices at zero. And then the next day, power prices are 200 euros, right? So it's like, you know, you, you can imagine, let's assume you're a retail client or an industrial client and your power, what you're paying for power is tied to the wholesale price. Then you're dealing with this volatility as well. And even those who have contracts, at some point, you know, at some point the hedges fall away from your utility and guess what? Your price goes up as well. So you're experiencing this, as I said, right across Europe. That's what we're seeing. Yeah. And when we move on to the consequences and the risks, obviously, at some point, some of these utilities are going to break as well. We've seen that in, you know, seen that in the UK with power providers and so forth. When you, my reading it prior to this discussion, you know, it seems like it's almost a perfect storm that is going on. Some of which is, you know, a constant storm in i.e. the solutions aren't going to be readily available. But what can you sort of define for us when, what were the seeds of this power crisis or the, the energy crisis and when did those get planted? Yeah, listen, I think you have to go back to this time last year. And really it starts with natural gas and it starts with the growth in national, in natural gas demand across the world. But in particular, China, right? If you just think last year, gas demand in China went up by 10%. Well, that's equivalent to the annual demand of France, right? And by the way, it's going to do the same again. And I said that was the start because you also had the Texas crisis as well, which also one of the impacts of that was that the Japanese actually went into the market and started buying gas early. They sort of had a, a, a foretaste of what was to come. And again, the market gets very tight. So that was the first thing that happened. And I'd say related to that, if we went back a few years ago, what we had in Europe was the gas price was tied to the oil price. Well, actually, I think a lot of the guys would love to have that today. But in fact, what happened was a lot of the guys renegotiated their contracts with Russia and not just Russia, just, just generally renegotiated and tied it to the wholesale price. And the reason they did this was because the wholesale price has been for gas has just been falling and falling because there's been a surplus of gas. And then guess what happens last year? Suddenly that surplus is gone and then the rest is history. And it sort of causes a little bit of panic because then what you realize is, oh, prices are going up. Oh God, I may better make sure that I get it before everybody else does. And, and then we had this spike before Christmas. So that was the, the first point I would say it was really, it was a gas thing that caused it. But that, the second thing I would say, and this is a very, very much a looking at sort of what's going on in the oil and gas area, but what you've seen is lack of upstream expenditure, right? And it's not just in Europe, right? But you've seen this big move in ESG away from fossil fuel fuels. I, I think those of us who are in this space have been predicting for this for quite a while. We knew that at some point there's going to be a big spike in oil and gas prices because there's just not enough supply. And the reality is that if you have GDP growth globally of 5%, well, you're going to have, you're going to have demand growth of half that in terms of oil, right? And that's what we saw. And, you know, you're not, you're not spending the money in the necessary expiration, et cetera, et cetera. And you get yourself in this situation. 
And you have that perfect storm element as well in the sense that 2019, you really had that real hammer blow to shale in the US. A lot of the private equity investors, a lot of the investors in general had had their fingers burnt. You know, the free cash flow just wasn't there. And so a lot of that, a lot of that investment tailed off. What's, as you say, what's been surprising is you've seen the oil and gas producers really install capital discipline in their businesses these last few years, but the investment hasn't followed as a result, arguably, of ESG and other policies around the world. So, you know, you, you've had this tail off in the US, in the US shale, you've had lack of future investment, and then obviously COVID, you know, really put a number of projects, key projects for oil and gas producers completely on hold. Um, and that all plays into this this growing in demand for gas and these these shocks from the winter storm and so forth, causing those initial price rises that put everyone on, on alert. Paul, the way I would describe it is we've been in an energy depression for the last 12 years, right? And mm. it, I mean, it goes back to 2008, right? From that date on, what you basically saw was energy prices falling. So in an environment where energy prices are falling, you sort of go, well, I can't make the margin I want to. I really want to go invest in that high-risk project. You don't do it. So we saw that in particular, if you're looking at offshore, anything that was deep offshore or whatever, you, you just pulled away from it. Tar sands, you pulled away from it. And, it. and actually in Europe here, what we've seen is, if I take the say in the Netherlands, the Groningen field has been closed down for, I suppose, environmental reasons more than anything else. But again, it goes back to, it's just, you're not putting that expenditure into fossil fuels, really. And then the other two elements to this, uh, if I'm wrong, are the increasing reliance of Europe on renewables, and then last summer or last year, suboptimal wind. And then you've got the, the backdrop of the nukes and falling off in loads from them as well. Can you talk to those two elements? Well, so actually, the, the bigger issue is nuclear, right? I and mean, let's talk, this is a really European-specific situation, right? So you have a situation today where half the nuclear fleet in France is out, all right? They're out for maintenance issues, et cetera, et cetera. And that's why if you look at power prices across Europe, on a daily basis, the highest power prices are in France because they don't have enough power and they have to import it before. And that's very important because France used to be a big exporter of power, right? And now they're not. So that's number one, it's that. And the other thing, just, just take the case of Germany, right? If we went back to Fukushima, March 2011, Germany had close to about 20 gigawatts worth of nuclear power plants, right? Well, they've closed 16 gigawatts of them over that period of time, right? And the last four gigawatts have been closed this year. Now, that's, you sort of say, well, why is that important? This is firm power in the market, right? In an area where you're sort of moving away from, you want to move away from fossil fuels towards variable renewables like solar and wind, well, that sort of creates a bit of an imbalance. And one of the things that nuclear did was because nuclear power stations were not flexible, what you would do is rather than switch them off, you just keep them pumping the power out. And that meant that you had surplus powers in a lot of periods of the day and power prices went down. And I say that very, very important is nuclear really was a large part of the enabler of why power prices went down over the last years. You had this nice mix between nuclear and renewable, but the second they're out of the system, then guess what? Where do you get your firm power? You have to turn somewhere else, and you're turning to coal and gas in particular, right? And that's a large part of, I would say, of what, what, what had happened. And I think what's, what, what makes this issue more scary from a European perspective 
is what you have as a belief that um, power prices will continue to zero, right? You, you hear this all the time is that, oh, yeah, you know, solar has zero marginal cost. That means power prices go to zero. Yes, it does. So at certain points of the day when there's too much solar in the system, power prices go to zero. But the second the sun goes in, well, the power prices go to 200 euros, right? That's what we're sort of seeing in the market. And you had a lot of parties in the across the whole of Europe who believed this narrative and didn't hedge. So, you know, if I take the case of the UK, I think I think we've, co- we've counted now at this point in time, 40 retail utilities in the UK have gone bankrupt. I just realized that number, 40 retail utilities. And they've gone bankrupt because they didn't hedge, because they were playing this game, which was, you know, they take a, a prepayment from a customer and they would be hoping that the power price goes down because they'll make more money on it, right? That's what they were doing. And guess what? That didn't work out for them. So they were they were signing fixed contracts with clients and not hedging on the other side. And the same is true in industry. A lot of industry also believed the same narrative and didn't hedge either. And also had contracts that were often tied to the wholesale power price. And guess what? They thought they were paying 50 euros and now they're paying 200. Yes. Yeah. We had Xavier Veillard of McKinsey on talking about just that level of crisis going on right now in, in the industrials. Cause of, as you say, they've been used to 12 years worth of an energy depression. Just before we sort of move on to the consequences and the deep risks in this, was part of Germany's, you're based in Germany and it was part of Germany's comfort in moving away from nuclear power because it could rely on Russian gas? That's a very good question, and I, and I would say the answer to that is yes. Uh, gas is considered the bridging technology, right? Bridging technology between the fossil fuel world and the future world of clean energy. So that definitely that was one big, big point. And let's be clear, the Germans talk about something they call Ostpolitik. And Ostpolitik is they're very proud of the fact that reunification took place without a civil war or without any bloodshed. And they put this down to Ostpolitik. And Ostpolitik is West Germany started really in the 1970s, the early 1970s, reaching out to Russia, building Russia, and integrating economically into them. And actually, even through this whole Cold War crisis and any problems they have with Russia, they've always delivered the gas to Germany. In fact, they still are, right? <laughs> I mean, we're in a crazy situation, but they still are. And this was... This was the, I suppose, look, you have to think that was also the German policy, foreign policy after the Second World War, which was integrate with your neighbors economically and you won't go to war with them, right? And it worked in terms of the Western Europe. We have the European Union. And obviously, things have changed now because of what's happened in Ukraine. I would argue that actually, probably, you're probably seeing the biggest change in German foreign policy since the Second World War. It's that big. And and obviously, that in, a large part of that is energy, right? Yeah. Okay. So what are the risks that we are seeing unfold at the moment? As you talk, it just strikes me that crisis might not be the, the right word for this because it, that suggests an acuity, acuteness to it, which what you've described as some of the structural challenges and causes to this you know, seem like they aren't easy fixes. But... What are the risks that we face? You know, there's been a lot of talk about disorderly markets. You've got government intervention. I mean, are we, are we, are we seeing potentially the pausing or the destruction of the, the liberal and liberalizing energy markets that we've seen over the last 20 years? Well, that's all possible, right? And what I would say is the reason it's possible 
is because there's massive stress in the system. And I think it's probably important to talk about what that stress is, right? And the, the, the first point I would say is volatility in the markets. And this volatility in the markets, if I take the case of the Spanish government intervening, the Spanish government had a great idea a few years ago that they would tie the retail power price to the wholesale price. That all worked, remember, when I said energy depression? Prices going yep. down, everybody's happy. And now you're paying 250 euros because gas is determining the power price. And they go into a panic and try to make market adjustments, right? So I'd say that's number one is the, vo the volatility. And the volatility is not just from a government perspective. It's also from a cust other customer perspective. You're an industrial customer doing the same thing. You're going, oh, my God, what are we going to do here? And they're all screaming. And then even from a utility perspective, trying to manage that risk, that's really, really tough. So volatility would be the first major stress in the market. And it's not, I would just say to you, the, the volatility was growing anyway. And the reason it was growing is because we have, at some points of the day, we've just too much renewables in the system, right? If you have a good weather day, a good weather day is lots of wind and lots of solar. What you have is too much power in the system and power's, prices go down to zero. Now, that was happening already, but now what's happened is because gas is now determining the power price because listen, there's not a lot of, there's no nuclear left or there's not enough nuclear in the system, then what you end up with is a situation where you have a, vol a daytime volatility. It could be one, year, one day zero and the next few day 300 euros a megawatt hour. And you're trying to sell power to your customer at 300 euros a megawatt hour. So that makes it very difficult. So volatility is number one. I, I'd say that the second thing you're seeing is share prices under pressure of these companies, right? So some of these companies were under stress already because of what was going on in the market. But the whole Ukrainian situation has just really just caused share prices. If I take the case of Uniper, which is a German utility, the share price is down like 40%. Right? I've never seen anything like this in the utility space. Anji, French utility, down 20%, right? EDF, French utility. Well, I could actually say to you, French, I think the, I think the French government is going to have to bail out EDF, right? I think the business is basically bankrupt, right? So that's sort of the type of stress that you're seeing in the market. And it goes on, right? I mean, we've also seen cyber attacks on the power system. And what I mean by that is we've definitely seen the Russians making a statement to us that, listen, if we wanted, we could take out your power system. And what they've done is they've attacked two wind companies, Nordex and Enercon, two German wind companies. And this is very important because both these companies have the ability to control the turbines that they have sold to people, right? So you can see what that means. You can attack the, uh, you can attack the servers of Enercon or Nordex, and you might be able to do considerable damage to the power system, right? So you've seen that. I would say there's a third one. And then you've got unhappy customers, right? I mean, you've got unhappy customers who suddenly are paying 50% more than they did a year ago, right? People weren't thinking about it. So lots of stresses. And then you've got governments then reacting to that and sort of saying, okay, well, what are we going to do to sort this out? So, you know, they're going to they're going to put in a price cap. Some of them get rid of VAT. In Germany, they get rid of all the renewable charges on the bill and they basically nationalized it. And every country is doing something different. Every country is doing some form of subsidization. Just going back to the utilities, you mentioned obviously the, the UK sort of power providers and 40 of those have gone down. Just through other episodes that we've done, we've talked a lot about sort of the rise of renewables, PPAs, and how these utilities were going around, hoovering them up. You know, what outside of sort of the volatility and the, and the challenges that they face with their customers, do these utilities have sort of existential risk on their books from 
structured deals, you know, PPAs, agreements, and hedges, and so forth, they've done in this period of low prices, low volatility over the last 15 years? Yes. So in a nutshell, yes. So let's take a very simple example, which is what you've got is the German utility Uniper, which is a producer of electricity, but it's also an importer of gas. And it doesn't have any, it, does, it has a very small number of sort of industrial customers and retail customers, but it's got one client on the other side. It's called Eon, right? And Eon has uh, have 50 million customers across Europe. Now, Eon doesn't own any generation, right? Because they split the business in two a few years ago. So Uniper is now its own. So you tell me what a risk you have there, right? So can you imagine the contractual situation and what could happen? Let's assume the Russians cut off the grass to Uniper. Well, then what happens? Okay, well, Uniper can't deliver to Eon. They can't deliver the power either. So what does that mean? Eon probably keep the guarantees that are on the balance sheet. And then they need to go and run and get that power, that gas elsewhere. Don't know if they're going to be able to do that or not. And then what happens to Uniper? It goes bankrupt. Well, let's assume Europe decides we're going to go and cut off the, uh, we're going to tell Uniper no more Russian gas. Well, where are they going to get the gas from to supply Eon, right? And I'm just saying the contractual mess and that makes it then very, very difficult to actually move. But let me be clear, the risks is enormous. And you've already seen Uniper take an 11 billion credit from its parent company uh, in Finland, Fortum, and the German government, 11 billion, just to be able to deal with this hedging risk that we're talking about, these margin calls that we had. And actually, it has. it's not just Uniper that's been under stress. There's, there's been other businesses as well, same type of level we've had big traders in Europe call on the European Union to really bring in a lender of last resort to make sure they can meet their margin calls, right? So that's incredibly stressful. What I will say is that I think we've done a good job of managing it so far because what the, what's actually happened is the German government jumped in and basically provided a 100 billion euro liquidity facility for these utilities, right? And that, that, that really has helped the situation. But I would say, I'd say going forward, probably need something beyond that. You know, maybe the European Central Bank needs to be allowed to be able to give this type of liquidity to these companies, right? But it's um, that's an, if one of these big utilities goes down, just the, we, the repercussions we're not even sure of because we don't know the contract situation that these guys are. I don't know. I'm giving you my opinion on the Uniper Eon contract, but I don't know it because it's not published, right? Can you just describe for us or just lean into that a little bit? So the, really this comes down to if the gas from Russia is, is shut off. You know, in the longer term, as we'll talk about, there's other stuff you can do. Obviously, there's getting these nukes patched up and back online would help. If gas gets shut off, suddenly we're in a, a world where there's power rationing. There's you're, you're essentially creating the uh, landscape for European nations to compete with one another and no longer send their power. The Nordics no longer transmitting it to Europe, into continental Europe, et cetera, et cetera, right? Can you just help us understand kind of that landscape? And I know that we've seen the responses so far have essentially been governments outside of Germany, governments looking to subsidize in from some form or fashion population's energy bills. But you started seeing what in what Germany have done. Yes, they provided that liquidity. They've also started making some changes around how contracts can be enforced, et cetera. 
can you just talk to us a bit about what governments are going to need to do in the event that gas gets shut off? Okay, well, well, let me just be clear. The other thing, I would actually be quite complimentary of what the German government has done in terms of keeping the stability of not just the German energy market, but the European, because the other thing that they did is that they, they nationalized Gazprom Germania. And Gazprom Germania is the holding company in Western Europe for, for all of Gazprom's businesses. Now, why is this important? Well, from a German perspective, it was, it was important because they have storage in Europe are in Germany, but that's actually the, not, not the really interesting thing. The really interesting one is they have something called Gazprom Trading in London. And Gazprom Trading is, is a significant counterparty in the European market. And what was actually happening was, because of uh, the whole situation uh, as it erupted, people were sort of saying, well, can we use Gazprom as a counterparty anymore? And suddenly there was counterparty risk and people were sort of going, well, we can't do this. But like, they're one of the big biggest players in the market. And there are, I know companies now, big industrial companies that were getting all their electricity and gas from Gazprom trading, right? So if that sort of goes down or, or whatever, as you could not just take down Gazprom trading, but you could probably take down the exchange as well. That was the threat that we were seeing. What actually was, the German government was very lucky because what actually Gazprom the Russian government decided to do was change the ownership of Gazprom Germania. Yeah. And really what they did was they gave it to friends and family of, you know, the, the Russian hierarchy. And this gave the German government a chance to sort of say, well, you've just broken the terms and conditions of agreement on us. And as a result, we're going to nationalize the business. And I think that was a really big moment. And it sort of calmed the whole situation down. So that was very good. But what you have seen is a lot of really silly things in the market, right? So you saw almost after the, the whole situation started, you saw the German economics minister run off to Qatar and sign an LNG agreement. Now, don't forget, they don't even have an LNG port, but they signed an LNG agreement. And then you've got the Italian government, and they're running off to the Congo to sign agreements, right? So that's what you've sort of seen. And that's not the way you're going to, if the gas is cut off, you can't go it alone. It is absolutely about There's certain countries can go it alone. So if you're Spain or Portugal, which are big LNG terminals, you're off there on the west coast of, our, of, of Europe, you can go it alone. But if you're Germany, Czech Republic, Slovenia, Slovakia, Austria, even the Baltic countries, none of those countries can go it alone. So you'd have to have a European solution to all of this. And... It, that's a big threat that we don't see there because I even saw like recently the Norwegian government, let's be clear, the Norwegians, the wealthiest country in Europe ahead of population, threatening to cut off power exports. And the reason is, is because their power prices have gone up because there's been a new interconnector built into Europe. Their power prices have gone up and they're subsidizing their customers. And then they're sort of saying, well, why the power prices have gone up? Because, you know, our utilities are selling the power into continental Europe. And I just say that that solidarity is really, really critical to, to dealing with this solution. There's only a European solution. And if that solidarity breaks down, well, you know, that's, that's not just a risk for energy in Europe. I think it's a risk for the whole European Union. I was going to say, what you're framing up there is potentially cataclysmic event. I don't sound so, but you've got at the national level stakeholders, i.e. voters, who are for the most part, going to be driven by 
their household budget, as everyone is across the world, power prices and food prices, both of which are rising. And it's going to be really hard to explain to those voters, especially in nations that are already, you know, France, etc., that have uh, just had an election that showed the popularity of anti-European sentiment to support and back a European-wide solution, which, as you say, if you're not going to have huge blackouts and real issues, you're going to need. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And that's why what we do need is we need real leadership at the European Union level. And we also need leadership from particularly the French and the Germans, right? We do need these these governments to step up and say, listen, we need to go and do something about this. And let's come out of Europe and say, sadly, I'm not seeing that. I'm not seeing it. And that's a big concern. Even, for example, if I look at the whole oil situation, right, I can understand, you know, it's very difficult to basically cut off the Russian gas tomorrow. Number one, it would definitely put us into a very severe recession. And you would have to go into cutting gas, et cetera, et cetera. But you could do it. We could do it. But Oil is actually a much easier one, but you see what we decided to do. We're going to do an oil embargo on Russia. Where's it starting? At the end of the year. End of the year. It's yeah. the end of the year. You said, go, what a joke. And I, I'm saying it's what a joke because, because if the goal is to put pressure on Russia, this is not helping, right? You're actually just, what you're showing the Russians is that we're divided, right? And that's not helpful. And by the way, we are divided. I suppose that's the reality. I suppose you have to accept it. We are divided. But I would, you know, I really think it's very, very, very important to come together and sort of, I'd almost say in some respects is that the European Union has now become an energy union. And if that energy union falls apart, we've got, as I said to you, the European Union will fall apart too. Mm. What does this mean? Before we move on to sort of solutions and remedies, if, if any, what does this mean for sort of the, the European power energy trading community? I mean, Obviously, volatility has always been a driver of returns for, for many. You've had a renewed, well, we've certainly seen over, over the last four years, really, a renewed interest in trading market, energy markets in Europe. Are we getting to a stage now where market risk, volatility, political risk is just so great that, you, you know, there might be, well, that, that it's difficult to manage the risks and actually trade it? Or, you know, and also, it, do you see scenarios whereby, you know, in a world of rising power prices, there are restrictions on market participants if they're not strategically involved in the, in the space? So listen, first and foremost, anything could happen. You know, there's definitely talk that, oh, we need to nationalize this industry, et cetera, et cetera. My reaction would that be, are you really going to be able to nationalize this industry and take control of all those rooftop solar and battery systems across across Europe, that's not going to work. That's not going to happen. I mean, I know these utilities very, very well, and even the grid operators, none of them are set up to do this. What's really nice about the European Union is that what you've got is you've got competitive markets which allow you to bid in everything from a coal plant to a battery to a solar system into it, and they compete with each other. And that's been very good up to now. And I suppose the question you have to ask yourself is, what's gone wrong? And can you and you can you rectify it? And so the two things I would say that's gone wrong is one is the power system, in particular the power system, was built for a different era. It was built to finance fossil fuel plants, right? So it's all about marginal cost, which is, you know, you compete and whoever is the marginal producer determines the 
the power price. Well, okay. So let's give you an example. Power price in Ireland today is 250 euros a megawatt hour. Well, why is that wind developer, a wind owner, also getting 250 euros an hour? And let's be clear, he has a feeding tariff. So he has a government subsidy, which is probably at 60. Why the hell are we giving him 250? Well, because probably certain governments made mistakes in and around the regulations that allowed this type of supernormal profit to take place. Now, I use that as an example because for me, the clear thing that's needed is you need to really rethink how the power markets work. And as an economist, I, I would say to you that to have equilibrium and fun properly functioning markets, what you need to have is elastic demand and supply curves. That means they need to be responsive. And what's very ha what's happened in the last years is we've seen incredible elasticity in the growth in the, in the supply side because we've all those renewables in the system and there's lots of people competing with each other. But there's been no elasticity change on the demand side. And what I mean by that is no flexibility. So in that type of environment, then you just naturally have massive amounts of volatility. So you just need a shock like this to have the volatility go through the roof. And I say that we then need to change this. And I was saying this beforehand as well, because for me, if you don't have flexibility, how can you integrate all this renewables in the system? And I, I give you the really simple example. So the German government has a plan to have 200 gigawatts of solar by 2030 now. That's their new new plan. Okay, well, peak demand is 80 gigawatts. So what are you going to do with that extra 120 gigawatts when there's on a sunny August day? I mean, come on, what are you going to do with it, right? I'm not, I tell you what, as a finance guy, I'm not going to build that that 200 the, the other of solar. I'm not going to do this because I go, I'm going to get zero or I'm going to get, I probably have to pay the bloody, the power system to take my power away, right? So you're know, coming from, that requires massive change. So that's the, I'd say it was one of the good points is that we now really need to rethink about how our energy markets work. But I will be clear, I'm totally for a market. It's just, we need to just change the way the markets work. That's all. What does that look like? Is that, you know, you as a householder, being able to buy your power on a real-time basis in the sense of, you know, prices are zero, you can turn all your lights on, you know, is, is are we talked about that, like, so actually making market prices much further down the value chain, right the way to houses and, and the gates of factories, so that they are able to take advantage of these much more volatile, much more changing power prices than we've ever seen as a consequence of renewables. Without a doubt, yes. And this requires, there's a few preconditions for this. One is you need to have smart meters. So country I'm living in Germany has no smart meters. So if you don't have smart meters, you can't have flexible pricing, right? I got, there's other countries that, that don't allow storage in the system. They don't allow batteries in the system, right? If I take the case of electric cars, electric cars is your perfect balancing mechanism for all the surplus power. So there you have that sunny day in Germany in 2030, and you've got all these solar cars and they plug in. Now, the problem is, do you as a customer really want to go, oh, do I, should I power my car now or not? You don't want to even think about that. So what you have to do is allow the enablement of business models that will do this for you, right? So, you know, it's Volkswagen who sort of says to you, listen, you're going to get, I'm going to give, you're going to pay X amount of money every month and I, I'll make sure you have electricity in your car and they manage it for you. I can see this type of thing happening. You have these aggregators and stuff like that. Well, I think that's uh, Tesla's power uh, share prices. Uh, exactly, exactly, in exactly. Indicator of that hope, right? Exactly. And I see that really as important, but you have to allow the enablement of these business models. And, 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 the, and the electricity space is highly complicated. 
regulations that are often outdated. Yeah. So, okay, so that's that's sort of what some of the longer-term solutions are. And I, and I want to finish on that as well, because I know you are a, an optimist about the power of technology to get us out of this. But in this next year, what can mitigate the ongoing European power crisis? It does ultimately hinge on how quickly these nukes can get repaired back online. And I know we had, did the episode with Michael Schneider pointing to some of the real challenges of every time you find a, you know, a light bulb goes out in one of these 40-year-old facilities, it's, you can find a whole host of problems behind it. It takes a long time to get them back online. But is that the, the crux? What else can be done over the course of the next year, especially leading up to the winter months, when things could get a whole lot worse? Okay, so there's a few things. Let's start with the power markets, and then we can go to the gas markets. So if you take the power markets, the goal should be to get as much nuclear back on the system as possible. This is in the UK. This is in France. And actually, I know the German government has said they can't actually put keep the nuclear plants on this year. This is not true. <laughs> I've heard a whole pile of stuff which they can't get their hands on the fuel. They can't. All oh, the people aren't there. This is not true. What it is is there's an emotional decision that's been made. And they know that the people of Germany want these nuclear plants closed and they're closed, right? So I can't see them reversing that decision, even though I think they should, because the result of it is that we're going to have higher power prices, okay? So that's number one. But then you have to ask, well, why have we have power prices? Can we do something emergency to do this? I started looking and you said, well, actually, part of the problem that we have is the gas prices. It's all about gas prices being at the levels they're at. And question is, can we do something to bring that gas price down? And actually, what doesn't make sense is to like do stuff like putting a cap on the on the electricity price. That that doesn't make sense because what you're still doing is if the price is 250 euros, remember, all these feeding tariff guys are still getting that 250 euros, even though you know they've got a feeding tariff from the government of 50. That's in law already. So the, you need to be able to bring that power price down. And I think the cheapest way to do that is actually probably to subsidize gas. Because it's the marginal pricer. Yeah, the because the marginal pricer. That's what you, as an emergency mechanism, you say, okay, guys, we don't want gas to go above these levels. But what you do is you create a market for the gas where, and I know, listen, you can have free riding and all this stuff, but I think that's the most sensible thing to do because then you're not also, in addition, paying all these super normal profits to all these renewable guys, right? That would, for me, be the obvious. But again, emergency thing. I don't like interfering in markets. But that's a sensible thing because then you could at least bring the power prices down from 250 euros, maybe down to 80 euros or something. And that's probably the lowest cost way of doing it, I would say. That, that is assuming, though, I assume it assumes, the Russian gas continues to flow. Because if Russian gas turns off, there's just not enough gas, right? Right. So you're absolutely right. So, so look, I would describe it as this is a 1600 terawatt hour challenge. What could you do in Europe on this? And I think the, if you ask me, could you do it? You could. But the first thing you would have to do is go out to the people and be open with them and say, guys, we're in an energy crisis. Turn down your central heating systems, right? So just, you know, every degree that you turn down is about 100 terawatt hours. Remember, I said you need 1600. So turn it down two degrees from 22 degrees to 20, and you're, you've got 200 to survive. Get industry involved in it and say, guys, you now to really need to think about this and begin to do look at how you can reduce gas demand, even incentivizing to do this. And of course, I would also say, listen, we have to get increased gas production in the North Sea. 
and really quickly. And I, I think you, you said it earlier on that part of the problem was that was through the Corona times, the, particularly a lot of the UK facilities just were not maintained like they would have been beforehand because it just couldn't get people out. But get, you know, you probably could get another 100 terawatt hours out of that. Then we need to increase pipeline imports. And I'm talking pipeline imports in from other areas. So in other words, you know, you're, you're taking it in from North Africa. You're taking it in from Greece into Bulgaria, stuff like that. And you need to get LNG in. But remember, part of the issue that we have in LNG is it's in East, it's the terminals, the free terminals or those with free capacity are in Western Europe. And we need it Eastern Europe, right? So how do you get it across? Again, I go back to cooperation. So we could do it, but it's um, it's not easy. And as I said to you, you need to start now. You cannot wait. I see I see the governments now. I saw the, the German regulator now putting out a picture on, on Twitter the other day showing how much the gas storage tanks have been filled up, right? And I sort of go, why are you doing this? Because this is, you're not really helping the situation because, and you're not being open and honest to people about the extent of the risk, okay? So that's that's the concern I'd have. And I know the Russians are on the other side saying the same thing. Now, the only good thing I would say about all of this is it's Russia and Europe are playing a game. And the game is who's going to cut off the gas first? Like, we'd prefer Russia to cut off the gas to us. Why? Because then we have a right to sue them in the courts going forward, right? If we yeah. cut off the gas then you could argue that we could actually end up with, you know, take the case of Europe, we could end up suing the European Union or the, or the Well, or the and it's also government. more politically palatable, right, to be able yeah. to blame someone else than... You blame uh, someone else, yeah. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? Because, well, one question before I ask this question, do you see at the policy level, sort of the level of sophisticated understanding that points us towards seeing rather than just putting in price controls and disrupting free markets, which we've, you know, we've all been there before, you know, in the various nations and it doesn't work. Do you see there's an understanding of, okay, some of these, you know, the need for smart meters, the need for, to manage some of the, the gas prices, as you allude to, you know, rather than just this caps on power prices, et cetera. I think, as you know, energy is very, very complex, right? And what you tend to have is you've different camps. So you've got a nuclear camp. You've got an oil and gas camp. You've got a renewables camp. You've got a grid camp. You've got a generator camp. And you've got an oil and gas industry. And they don't talk to each other. And because they come from their different camps, they come with their own view of what should be done, but they miss the big picture. And I see this right across the whole landscape of energy, right? And I, I do joke and I say, listen, have you ever seen a smart regulator? No, I haven't. Right, and that's and and it is a criticism of them, because their job is to have that big picture, and to understand what's going on, and what the best way for us to move forward is. And I'm not seeing it now. The hope I have is that decarbonization in the past was just was about environment, right? It was about right. It's about greenhouse gases and stuff like that. Now it's about energy security, and so there, I think you're going to see a very significant change in how people look at energy, right? And that's that's very important. Yeah, I was going to ask is this is this the 1973 oil crisis of the of the new energy economy, right? In other words, this is a crisis, it's affecting everyone and society-wide, regulators-wide, you know, policy-wide, you, this will affect a change that because as you say, the things you need about energy is security of supply first and foremost. 
this has been put front and centre on the table and this will be the moment that spurs Europe in particular to march towards energy independence through renewables. So, Paul, I, I hope you're right. But what <laughs> I've seen up to now is the opposite. So if we went back to the oil crisis, what we saw was Jimmy Carter, U.S. president, putting solar on the roof. We saw governments telling the people, please don't drive on, on Sundays. And we had this national effort that countries were saying, I'm doing this for my country. I'm doing this. And what you actually had was, if you think of it from an energy efficiency point of view, what you had was massive energy efficiency, particularly in the oil space. That's what we saw after the oil crisis. But what I'm seeing here is not that. I'm not seeing any government saying to their people, guys, we've got an issue here. We need to go green and we need to embrace energy efficiency and we need to do the right thing for everybody. I'm not seeing this. I'm seeing governments going in and actually what they're doing is subsidizing fossil fuels, right? They're cutting taxes on diesel there. You know, th this is what I'm seeing in the market. So you're seeing a lot of, yeah, that's what frustrates me most because what they should be doing is being open with the people and saying, listen, this is a sort of war situation we're in. We need to bind together and we need to get through this. And I'm not seeing this anywhere across Europe. Well, if you don't mind, you can leave us on a note of hope. What do you think the longer range sort of solution to all this is? The hope that I'd have, and I, I'm seeing it as well, right? So the hope that I have is that because national security is now energy security, you're going to see an acceleration away from fossil fuels. That's what, there's, there's, just, there's, no, there's, there's no doubt about this. And, and by the way, it's not just Europe. If I look at China, the exact same thing. They're in the same boat, right? Which is they're importing oil, they're importing gas, and they see the risks and they say, oh my God, we have to do something else. So the question is, what happens? Well, the way to cut fossil fuels is you need to electrify as much as you can of the energy system. And by the way, this is not just me saying this is, if you go to the IEA, that's what they'll say. If they look at their 2050 net zero pathway, it's all about increasing clean electricity. And why is this important? Because, okay, clean electricity is obvious, but the reason electrification is really interesting is because electrification, if you take an electric car, it's three times as efficient as a combustion engine. That means fuel costs should be three times lower. And that's, that's, a, that's a very, very, very important point. So that's what gets me positive is that I look and say, well, what we're now going to do is we're going to electrify, deeply electrify our energy system. And I, I also come from the technology point of view where I look and I say, well, you know, what are these technologies and why, am I, why do I think this is possible? Well, I went back and I give the story, uh, 2004, I, I was asked by a client of mine to go and visit a solar company. He wanted to invest in the company. And I looked at the company, I went back to him and I said, don't invest. And he said, no, 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 Jared, you need to go. This is really a blower. And I, went, I looked at him, I said, the costs of generating electricity are 500 euros a megawatt hour. He said, no, 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 go meet the entrepreneur. I met the entrepreneur. The entrepreneur blew my mind away. And he said to me, Jared, this is going to be the lowest cost form of electricity production in the world. And guess what? Today in Germany, that's I'm generating electricity and solar with 50 euros a megawatt hour. I'm, by the way, not just that. The speed of this technology coming to market. I go back to 2004. The world market for solar was a gigawatt. This year, it's going to be 180 gigawatts, right? 
just realize 180 gigawatts, that's more than every single technology put together. So that's, that's what gives me, gives me, gives me faith is that it's not just solar, by the way, it's other technologies. So if I look in the future, what gets me very excited is huge amount of very interesting things going on in the nuclear area, which is next generation of nuclear fission reactors, but also nuclear fusion. I think there could be something quite interesting in that. And I'd also, the wild card for me is geothermal. You know, at the end of the day, I've got all this heat sitting in the ground down below us. Can you actually take it out? And I look at shale gas and I say, well, we should be taking that drilling technology and putting into geothermal. So I'm actually very positive about the future. And I'm very excited about what's going to happen between now and 2030. Yeah. Yeah, it just might be a rough ride getting there. But um, I've really enjoyed having you come on. I want to take a moment just to recommend to our listeners your podcast, along with Laurent Segalan, who's been a, a guest on, on this show before, Redefining Energy, which is out every two weeks. And I think you have shorter episodes every week. And much of your body of work is zooming in on, on many of these topics we've only lightly touched today. So I definitely want people to go and check that out. But um, yeah, thanks very much for your time. It's been slightly part terrifying, part hopeful. Thank you very much, Paul, for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and Human Capital, a search firm dedicated to the commodities sector, go to www.hcinsider.global, where you'll find more original content on the commodities sector and more details on our offering as a search firm and our locations around the world. Thanks again for listening. Thank you.